It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of the Airhead 247 podcast. This week, a candid and, I think, insightful conversation with Ted Moyer. He is the executive director of the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America. Now, everyone knows we've been partnered with the MOA for a membership drive. I've been talking ad nauseum about it for quite a while. But I want to say this. It's worth noting this interview happened before the MOA came on board as a sponsor. That said, I think you'll find this conversation with Ted refreshing and honest. We cover a lot of motorcycle and club-related topics, and yes, there is some good airhead talk here as well. William Plam is back for another Tech Talk this week, replacing the rear main seal. Want to say hello and thanks to Dave from Bakersfield, California, for dropping us a line via our Airheads247 at Hotmail email address. Dave wrote, noting he's a regular listener to the program, and he's got a small bike shop that deals with both airheads and oilheads. However, that's not the angle here. Turns out, Dave is the guy I bought my 81 R80GS from about seven years ago. And I was just thinking back, remembering seeing the ad for that bike on eBay. I sent him a note, called him immediately, and made the deal for the bike on the phone pretty much sight unseen. So Dave, thanks for the GS sale and thanks for listening and taking time to write. Okay, let's get to it. Ted Moyer on the Airhead 247 podcast. We're on the line with Ted Moyer and Ted, first thing I want to ask you, uh, we can go over some bona fides, uh, your motorcycle bona fides and what you've done uh, over the years uh, in the industry and with BMW motorcycles and the lot. But first thing I want to ask you, what motorcycles are in your garage right now? So in, in my garage right now is an R1250GS and R1200RT. And a little bit of a backstory that I actually don't have a garage right now. My wife and I moved a couple years ago and sort of downsized. So I uh, downsized my motorcycles as well. And, and it was kind of painful to get down to the two, but I did it. <laughs> I can imagine. So what did you sell? Uh, what did you sell to get down to two? I had a, a, a stable full, and, and it was several different brands, um, things that I had that were somewhat unique to me, I guess, or things that I just had a, a, an interest in over time. So I had a, a 1980 Suzuki a GS850 that belonged to my dad that I held on to for a number of years. I had a small collection of uh, Yamaha RZ350s that uh, a couple of them were parts bikes, one that was that was a, a running, working motorcycle in really nice shape that I was kind of hanging on to. Uh, 
Um, I had a Suzuki B-Strom 650, and kind of the prized possession of the lot was a 1978 uh, R100 RS Motorsport that oh, I had kept for about 10 years and it was one of those bikes that I swore I would never sell and, and told my wife you know don't even ask because I'll never get rid of this motorcycle and uh, when we moved and kind of came to the realization that I wasn't going to have a garage anymore I just couldn't bear the thought of of it being outside or, or unprotected or any of that kind of stuff so I let somebody else love it and uh, found a good home for it in California. Wow excellent yeah so our listeners are really familiar with that particular model, the Motosport 78RS, uh, the white paint with the Motosport pinstripe trim. Uh, how, so you said you had the bike for 10 years. Was it uh, original paint? Uh, pretty nice low mileage example. What? Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, it was actually. And, and I had known the bike. It's, it's a, a little bit of a lengthy story, but I had known the bike previous to purchasing it. It belonged to a friend of mine. And he had actually bought a 77 R100RS in Havana Gold. And he came over one day, and I saw that bike. It was actually one of the first ones that I had seen. This goes back probably almost 30 years, I would guess. And uh, when I saw it, I absolutely fell in love with the R100RS. And the reason he was showing it to me is because he wanted help uh, selling it because he had found the motorsport that he wanted to buy. So he sold the 77 uh, purchased the 78 Motorsport, and of course, when the Motorsport showed up, I kind of fell in love with it, too, and I, I told him at the time, I said, hey, if you ever decide to sell that motorcycle, you know, I, I want first dibs on it, and we, um, he and I actually are, are became really good friends over time and hung out quite a bit together, used to go to the motorcycle races, and, and sort of every year at Bike Week and at Barber Motorsports Park, we would I would just sort of hint at him, hey, don't forget, if you ever want to sell that RS, I'm your guy. And uh, finally, after years and years of asking, we were sitting at Barber, and, and he said, are you still interested in the motorsport? And I said, absolutely. And so I, I went over on Monday and picked it up from him, um, along with a, a Honda CB400 that he owned. So I, I got both of them in kind of a package deal. But the bike... Uh, the bike had uh, 14,000 miles on it when I bought it from him. It was all original. He was a second owner, so I was a third owner. Uh, really great shape. In the 10 plus years that I owned it, I don't. I probably didn't put 2,000, 3,000 miles on it. I, I literally. There were times when I kept it in my office, <laughs> and uh, it just. It just gave me a good vibe to walk by and see it, you know, and look at it and sort of touch it, you know, that sort of thing. I just was absolutely in love with that motorcycle. Um, just very iconic for BMW and, and one of my favorites of all time. Indeed. Did it still have, if you recall, uh, the turn signal buzzer on it? It did, actually. Yeah. Um, it did. It's been a while, but yes, it did, now that I think about it. Yeah, I have a 78 RS in the metallic gold uh, that I purchased uh, about a year, a year and a half ago or something like that. Real low miles, uh, nice, really original example, and it still did have the turn signal buzzer on there. And I've kept it on there and kept it operational. I find it, uh, I think I call it sort of annoyingly uh, pertinent to the bike because, you know, I do get some strange looks when I'm sitting at an intersection and, <laughs> and, and, the, and the buzzer's going off. 
Um, what and so yeah, I understand too. With a bike like that, you're not necessarily going to you know ride it to rallies or you know go out uh, for week long trips on it. But what was your sort of overall experience riding that? And do you recall? Did you really have to do much in the way of maintenance or repair on it uh, during your tenure? No, it was really a classic airhead story, right? It would, um, I mean, at only a few hundred, I mean, maybe a thousand miles at the most in a given year, um, it would sit for long periods of time. And I was usually pretty good about, um, you know, keeping fresh or stable gas in it and draining the bowls and that sort of thing. But I can, typical story, I can remember letting it sit probably longer than I should have and every once in a while getting the battery on some type of charger or battery timber, but the bowls were dry. And after at least a year, you know, I went over to the bike and thought, well, this is the weekend. I'm going to get it out and fire it up and, and you know, be, hopefully it still runs. And, um, you know, you pull it, it was covered in the garage and I had a little space for it and I pulled it out and uncover everything, put fresh gas in it and, uh, turn the petcocks on and bam, it fires right up, you know, and it just, it just brings a smile to your face every time a motorcycle does that. In in my opinion, I mean, it's just, uh, fantastic. And, And of course with today's bad fuel and all that kind of stuff, it's so rare that that, that that actually works out that way, but that motorcycle, you know, never failed to just fire right up anytime you wanted to go ride it. So it was always a favorite. Yeah. I bet that was a uh, diff- difficult to sell. Did it go to a friend or acquaintance or something like that? Well, yes and no. So it actually went to a gentleman in California who is a, a, an MOA member and I did not know him at the time. Um, I, I, I can't remember if it was on, it, again, sort of a long story. There was one on um, Bring a Trailer, yeah. and uh, I had put mine on eBay, I think, and there were some comments that got started on Bring a Trailer about the one that was on, on auction, and uh, somebody referenced mine. Somebody said you know, that the price for the one on Bring a Trailer was just skyrocketing, and a couple of people were sort of lamenting the fact that it was going so high. And somebody posted a link to mine and said, basically, well, this guy's got one for sale, and it's, it's nicer and less expensive. Um, and so it ended up selling off of eBay, and a guy came to look at it. He, he, you know, he, in his words, he came to look at it, but um, he wasn't buying it, even though he had kind of won the auction. And, and he told me that uh, he had one. I already had a motorsport, and he was going to buy this one because there were a couple things on mine that was nicer than his mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. And he was going to make one out of the two of them. And I, I kind of looked at him, and I thought, you got to be kidding me, yeah, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're going to tear up a 15,000 or 18,000-mile motorcycle? I mean, there's better ways to do this, you know. And um, it, I told him, I can remember he was there, and I told him, I said, you know what? It won't hurt my feelings if you don't buy this motorcycle. It's, it's okay. And he was like, <laughs> okay, I don't want it. And he just flat out said, all right, that's fine. And so then it ended up selling to, uh, I think the second place guy was out in California, or maybe I listed it again, um, and he bought it and was super excited to get it. And he ended up taking it to a um, another MOA member who does quite a, a bit of work out there. His name is Greg Hutchinson, and yeah. he's kind of known in those airhead circles. Indeed. And uh, Greg called me one day, and he said, hey, do you 
did you own a, a motorsport? I was like, well, yeah, I just sold it to this guy in California. And he said, well, when was the last time it ran? And I said, uh, well, it, it, you know, it ran before we put it on the trailer, so to speak. And he was like, yeah, it's been, it's in my shop right now. It's been sitting for a little while. And I was like, well, no doubt. So the guy had ended up taking it to Greg to uh, get a little bit of work done on it um, and kind of give it the once over and go all the way through it. Uh, and I, I, unfortunately, I forget the buyer's name. It's been a while, but, yeah. but uh, I do remember that it ended up with Greg, and he called me out of the blue one day, and I thought, well, it's just such a small a small world, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of it, where stuff goes and how yeah, it happens. Yeah, there are not many degrees of separation. So what year was that? Oh, this was uh, three years ago. Okay. All we, right. moved, we moved in 2020, right, kind of in the middle of the pandemic, we, we moved. All right. So, yeah, if anybody wants to go back and source that uh, BAT auction for that other uh, motorsport that was for sale. We could probably go back and see some of the comments and, and things like that. Uh, the final question on that then, I guess, was were you surprised, disappointed, uh, <coughs> reluctant, uh, you know, have having second thoughts, I guess, when you saw what the one on BAT sold and what you're sold for? Was there a big discrepancy there or what were your feelings a after you saw all that? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I mean, I, I, it always is a little bit painful to let go of a motorcycle just because I have such a personal connection to them as a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and and this and mine didn't sell for as much as um, I, you know, as you might dream that it would. You, and when I think, I think when you sit down and start thinking about selling something, you always hope it goes for the maximum and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it didn't sell quite as high as I would like for it to. Uh, but at the same time. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like you never look a, a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. Uh, the bike sold for, for more than I had invested in it um, after having owned it for 12 or 13 years, however long I had it. And the person that got it seemed like a really, uh, a really nice guy who was very interested in owning it. And I thought, well... I mean, I literally thought, well, he's he's going to love it as much, if not more, than I did. Uh, and I think in sort of the whole motorcycle karma world, that's that's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> if it's no. going to go to a good home and, and be loved, I'm, I'm happy with it. Fair point, fair point. I agree with you 100%. And before we move on, I don't want to gloss over, uh, you mentioned you had a Suzuki that your father owned, uh, a, a GS, which... Uh, the Suzuki GS, if I'm recalling, was sort of like the four-cylinder kind of cruiser bike of the late 70s and 80s. Is that right? It was. It was an inline four-cylinder, uh, 850 shaft-driven. Um, had kind of a king queen seat on it. You're exactly right. It was their it was their sport touring or touring model at the time. What color? His was black, and it had uh, gold pinstripes, mm. and it had. Uh, he had a really cool – now, this was the only motorcycle he ever owned, and he bought it in 1992, so it was 12 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. But it had a, a really cool uh, sissy bar and, and luggage rack on the back of oh, it. Oh, yeah. It yep. had a big uh, – um, uh, it wasn't National Cycle, but there was – maybe it was National Cycle, big plexiglass, you know, National Cycle windshield on the front of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and like I said, it was just, it was the only motorcycle that he ever owned. And so uh, he stopped riding in about 2012 and then passed in 2015. And it was just one of those that I kind of thought, well, it'd be cool to hang on to this for a while. And, so yeah. I had it for a few years and then 
uh, sort of the same story. I found a guy who I felt like would love it as much, if not more, than I did, and and I was happy to have have it sort of live on in another way. Yeah, that brings up a good point. I mean, a lot of times you'll hear the phrase uh, when people are shopping for a motorcycle, they'll shop the seller, meaning they're looking for somebody who they think has been a good custodian of the bike. And you know, when you're looking at pictures, you don't see, you know, beer cans in the background, you know, laying around on the floor and that kind of stuff. But then. You know, conversely, you were probably shopping a buyer uh, in that uh, regard as well. Yeah, it's always, I mean, the, the, the buy-sell process for me is, uh, I'm not much of a, of a negotiator. I, I love the, I, I kind of gravitate towards the online auctions and things like that. And I just, I, I kind of want to get to the end of, I either want to pay one price or sell it for one price or whatever it may be. But I definitely, you know, I think as a, a seller, I always want somebody to be satisfied. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. want them to get to show up at my house looking at the motorcycle and say, well, it wasn't what you said it was, or gosh, this isn't worth nearly what I agreed to pay for it, you know, over the phone. And we do so much digitally these days across miles that that's always the big concern. I just assume, you know, make a new friend and, yeah. and get a fair price and have you be happy with it is is kind of how I feel about them. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Boy, I just think about those Suzuki's uh, and other Japanese bikes of that era. You know, they just had a unique, like any motorcycle, you know, unique sound, a unique smell, uh, a unique feel, you know. Did you? I, I wondered. Uh, did you ever have like a members only jacket you might have slipped on? You know, as a <laughs> <laughs> kind of a period correct jacket to go ride with, with that. I mean, it would have been perfect. Well, I, I don't know that I had it on the um, on the Suzuki, but I definitely, you know, when I first started riding and, and bought my first motorcycle, I got a helmet in the deal. And uh, I think I did ride around in a leather members only jacket. <laughs> that was all I could afford. <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's funny. I, I'd look at those on eBay every once in a while just as a bit of nostalgia. But, uh, well, that's a great story. So I'm glad to know you've obviously you've got a great uh, connection there with Airheads, uh, with the motorsport. Um, and so what? tell me a little bit about, too, your background in the motorcycle industry. I'm sure that played a role in uh, you being hired uh, as the executive director of the MOA. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of an interesting story. I was, I was, I've got two adult kids, and uh, both have just recently graduated. I was having a conversation with my daughter not too long ago and, and sort of giving her the fatherly advice of, you know, hey, hey, leave room for the fact that things change in your life, that mm-hmm. you don't always end up where you think you're going to be, and, and that's definitely uh, kind of my story. I I started in the in the food business and consumer packaged goods, and I worked for a couple of the big brands and Pillsbury and Frito Lay and PepsiCo uh, for a few years. Was in the grocery business, and uh, ended up going to work for a dealership, and then uh, met. The, at the time, the executive director of the BMW MOA was a man named Ray Zimmerman who uh, happened to be a customer of the dealership. And Ray and I just, he had stopped in one Saturday to get his motorcycle serviced and, and had been kind of shooting the breeze, for lack of a better term. And um, Ray said that they had a, a contract position open at the MOA to sell advertising in the BMW Owner's News. And um, I asked him if I could apply, you know, and he said, absolutely. And so I, I did. And that was 22 years ago now. And over time, 
I, I, I very quickly, number one, I very quickly figured out that, that this was a good place and that I was home. Um, it was a small organization. It was a pretty small staff. The people were all very good. You got to talk about motorcycles and think about motorcycles and talk to people who like to talk about motorcycles. And so I, I kind of came to the realization, like, hmm, this must be a pretty good job if you can do all those things. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members and to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD 247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Okay, back to our conversation with Ted Moyer on the Airhead 247 podcast. Um, and so I started out selling advertising for the Owner's News and did that for about five years and sort of worked my way into a, a position of confidence, so to speak, where the, the MOA sort of trusted me and, and knew what I could deliver. And we were starting to go to all the international motorcycle shows, and they were looking for somebody to to uh, attend and represent the MOA at a table and stand there for the weekend. And I kind of volunteered. I said, well, I'll do it. If no one else wants to do it, I can do it. And so I ran our trade shows for us, our consumer shows, for uh, a few years along with uh, the advertising sales. And then Ray ended up retiring, and we hired uh, Bob Aldridge, who was our second executive director. And Bob and I had worked together on our charitable foundation that I also got involved with. And uh, Bob retained me <clears throat> in a, a marketing and membership role. And he just retired in 2020, at the end of 2019, so January 1 of 2020. And that's when I started as uh, the executive director. So it's been kind of a... Um, it's been a, I mean, a fantastic ride for me. I, I absolutely still believe that this is home, and I love the people here in the organization. And it, it's, there are many days that I get up and kind of have to pinch myself or knock on wood that uh, they still employ me here, and and that I do get to talk about motorcycles and think about motorcycles and talk to people who love motorcycles. So it's a, it's a fantastic place to be. Quite honestly, is there a tie-in? With what you did in the in the food and, and grocery industry, um, that that you brought in your leadership role or in this particular position uh, at the MOA, there 
there is. I, I didn't necessarily see it at the time when I first started selling advertising. It was just strictly sales, and I was um, I was 100% commissioned actually. So the very first contract that I had, I just got paid a straight percentage of whatever. I not only sold, but collected. Mm -hmm. I didn't get paid until an advertiser paid. And um, it was once a month. And I paid all my, you know, you were on your own. You paid all your expenses, everything. And when times were good, it was good. And when times were bad, you figured out how to uh, buy an extra can of peanut butter that month. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I was fortunate that, you know, I I could make it work and and, uh, knew how to manage those things, so to speak. Um, Over time... My role in the food industry, uh, I started in sales in the food industry, but got into, uh, was lucky enough to get into data analytics and consumer marketing. And so I spent a decent amount of time working with uh, uh, grocery stores and big grocery chains writing uh, marketing plans. And I ended up in in Bentonville, Arkansas on our Walmart team at the time Mm. in the mid-90s. And so, uh, again, it was kind of one of those roles where you, you either perform or you don't and they get rid of you because it, Walmart was such a large animal in the food business at the time. And so uh, all of that experience kind of culminated into um, my membership and marketing role, which is really what I love. Um, as executive director, I do a lot of things of you know paying bills and collecting advertising receipts and uh, cleaning the toilet, that that's what it comes down to, that I'm not absolutely in love with. I really love uh, the marketing and membership side the most. But it's um, it, it's all combined into one, and I love it every day. I mean, we're still a, a very small staff here. There's only seven people that work for the MOA, uh, along with a, a pretty large army of volunteers in a bunch of different capacities. So, we tend to uh, our our t- our little team tends to chip in and do anything that they need to do, and, and we've got a good group of people that have a pretty diverse skill set that's that's fun to work with. So very very fortunate. Yeah, I think it bears mentioning here. Anybody who's in an executive director role, especially in a smaller organization like yours or like the MOA, uh, when a job needs to get done, it just needs to get done. And, you know, you mentioned the, the cleaning of the toilets or things like that. And, you know, sometimes I, I know what you mean. Uh, I've uh, been uh, in smaller organizations like that or jobs where, you know, you're sort of at the top of the totem pole. And when something needs to get done, you have to just look internally and say, all right, you know, it's going to fall on me right now. It's, it's got to happen. It does, and it's it's you know challenging and rewarding at the same time. Yeah. I still tell people to this day, I absolutely believe what ingrained me here was uh, work at our national rally in the very early days. Uh, our staff that ran our merchandise setup would stay on Saturday night, and and they would pack up all the gear that we had brought on two different pallets. That's at the time, that's all the all the stuff we had it was just two pallets. But there was a little bit of effort to uh, break all that stuff down and get it into boxes and pack it. And like I said, I was a contractor at the time, so I, I mean, I didn't get it wasn't it wasn't my job, so to speak, to go in and help break down the gear store. <laughs> right. But um, uh, I went each rally. You know, I learned pretty quickly that that the staff would take care of me, and so I would go on Saturday afternoon at the rally, and I would help them pack up the gear store and load those pallets and strap them down and shrink wrap them and help get them on the truck mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I'm still convinced to this day that that, that was what 
that was the moment. I'm convinced that the staff went back on Monday and said, he's okay. Yeah. He's not a bad guy. You know, we can keep him for a little while. <laughs> yeah, when you're down in the trenches like that, there's no such thing as that's not my job. Um, I, I, I totally exactly. get that. Uh, I want to ask you, um, what is – the this is a two-pronged question. What is the current sort of – how would you characterize the relationship between the MOA and BMW NA now – uh, and has it changed? What, what's been the historical uh, way that relationship has been uh, over the years? Yeah, it depends. I think it uh, absolutely depends on, on who you ask as to how it's described. But since you asked me, I would tell you that um, it's good. We always look at it and hope that it can be even better, that there are more ways that we can work together or you know, that we can uh, leverage each other, that sort of thing. But it ebbs and flows every day, and, and so it, it kind of goes back and forth. In my tenure here, uh, there are times that it's been better than what it is right now, and there are, but I think there are more times when it has been much worse than what it is right now. And I don't know that there's ever been a time that it was really uh, adversarial, so to speak. I think it just is a matter of, whether or not BMW sees uh, any significance in us as an entity or as a club. And I think over time, you know, not, not to be uh, offensive to BMW by any means, but I think they, they really struggle at, or maybe we haven't done a great job of explaining to them the relevance that the, the MOA has. And so when we get individuals that are there at BMW and, and – um, you know, have a penchant for the MOA, then they tend to see more significance in us. We do have a, a couple of members that um, work for BMW or have over time, and of course we do a lot of outreach to uh, offer membership to some of their employees or to try to get them to understand what the organization does and how it can be beneficial. And, it, you know, they're just really, in New Jersey, they're really in a tough spot that uh, they're very much a sales organization and very much charged with with numbers and getting new units out the door. And um, as it can be in most um, big corporations like that, you know, it, it really boils down to uh, how you're performing and how quickly and whether or not you're you're moving the numbers or not. And so uh, over time, almost everyone that I've met there tends to be under – um, I don't want to say a lot of pressure, but they, they definitely are focused on their jobs and their responsibilities and, and uh, moving motorcycles and that sort of thing. And, and community uh, tends to be a, a secondary thought for them. So um, I say all that to say, it's like I said, it's a good relationship with them. It's, it's healthy. I don't think it's adversarial by any means. Um, we, would, we would love to be more significant. But I think we've realized over the last several years that that's really on us to prove our value to BMW, and that's kind of where we are now, is that we we consistently try to prove our value and our worth and show them and demonstrate that, that we're important to the community and to the motorcycle world. One thing I've heard from other folks I've interviewed for this program who worked with BMW NA, uh, you know, maybe in the 70s uh, and onward, and a lot of these guys that I've interviewed that's been their that was their time when they were involved with it was you know in the 70s and 80s uh or maybe even a little bit newer somebody like bob henning at bob B, bob's bmw one of the things 
they found particularly frustrating, I think, was there was always seemed to be when you'd make a relationship with somebody at BMW, a year or two later, that person would be gone or would be moved or promoted to a different role. So there wasn't a lot of time uh, to make lasting long-term relationships with people in a particular position at the organization. But it, is that uh, an experience you had as well? Most definitely. I think we we have experienced exactly that and probably the most frustrating thing in, in trying to navigate those waters is that people do come and go. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there just aren't very many people that stay in a, you know, good for them. They're moving up to bigger and better things and doing more stuff. But just about the time we think we've got a really good champion, you know, at BMW for whatever reason, they tend to uh, get promoted or move on to uh, something else. And so it's just, again, the motorcycles are kind of in the in the big scheme of things. Motorcycles for BMW are a pretty small piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And um, yeah, when you when you look at those guys who are or people, I shouldn't say just guys, but men and women, who are career-oriented and, and looking to kind of make a name for themselves in the business world or however that might work, they definitely, I mean, the car side is, is a lot of times where the gold is. And sure. So they're, um, you know, trying to put their best foot forward and sell as many motorcycles as they can and do a good job for their bosses. And when they do, they're recognized and they move on to, to greener pastures. So it um, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, it's just how it works. Yeah. And I guess, you know, when I think of BMW NA and how they would interact with an organization like the MOA, you know, baseline is, okay, at the rally, can you bring some demo bikes? Uh, you know, can you have some door prizes? I mean, those are just sort of, ba or whatever that might be, uh, that's sort of a baseline uh relationship that you're trying to make sure those things happen at your larger events. What are some of the other things that folks might not know of or be as familiar with that you've partnered with them or work with them on? Probably our strongest relationship right now is with the BMW Performance Center and their, their training arm. So we've done a lot with uh, Aaron Rankin and his group. And of course, they um, all the performance center reports back up through um, Mark Boucher. Not to, to drop a bunch of names, but but Mark is in charge of their marketing and communications here in the United States, and has been a bit of a champion for uh, the MOA over time. And he really has uh, offered a lot of help through Aaron and his group at the BMW Performance Center. So we have our uh, each year we have a series of what we call premier training events. That's kind of a partnership with. Uh, BMW and the Performance Center to take people over to their facility there in Greer and get trained on both uh, on-road and off-road. And Aaron and, and his group of trainers uh, do a fantastic job kind of embracing that membership. Um, they come to the rally each year, so they offer their authority classes uh, at the rally each year, which is really a I don't think people realize what a big effort that is for them to load, you know, 900 traffic cones in a trailer or yeah. six motorcycles and come spend seven days away from their families setting up those courses and offering the authority training. I mean, it's a big, it's a big effort for them. And then most recently, of course, they supported us uh, fantastically on Motorod Fest, which was uh, a first-year event for us. And an RTP, the RT Police Unit Rodeo, 
And so we were able to get that off the ground this September, and Aaron and his group kind of did the same thing. You know, load up 900 cones, bring them all out to Tennessee, set up a course, officiate, um, helped us with some departments to get some people there, you know, to compete. And uh, we're super excited that that, you know, has a chance to get off the ground as a second-year event. And eventually, we kind of share a vision of, of having a um, almost like a world championships of, of for RT police motorcycles. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good to know. I want to ask you and talk a little bit about the history of the club, and let me dive into that this way. I joined the MOA right when I got out of college. Uh, I purchased a Slash 5. I lived in Athens, Ohio, and uh, I was lucky enough to have Holt BMW as a dealer in that small college town. And subsequently moved to Memphis and joined the MOA, I want to say it was probably in 1991 or 92 um, when I graduated. And at the time, uh, it was... It made a lot of sense to me as a new owner because it was the one place where I could find articles, uh, news and notes on the motorcycles, uh, both old and new. And again, you know, we all know what the line, lineup was uh, in the in the mid to late 90s there, you know, towards the end of the R run and all the K bikes. And also at the same time, that was a great place where folks would find parts for sale, bikes for sale. I mean, that was really the focus place in, in that community where you could find all that stuff. And, of course, you know, the camaraderie, uh, you know, meeting folks, going to some rallies and things like that. Uh, that was my initial introduction into the into the club back then. And, of course, that was remarkably a, a different time. I mean, that was pre-Internet, pre-cell phone, um, all different kinds of things. The, the motorcycle lineup BMW had at the time was much different. So uh, my question here is, and you've been with the, uh, you mentioned you've been with the organization for quite a while now in a number of different roles. Um, what have been some of the challenges and changes that you've had to navigate uh, over the years? In essence, I'm asking, I think, what are some of the big notable things that the club, how, how the club has changed over the years with technology and, and with more bikes being offered? Sure. The, I think the big ones that most people are going to know or, or I think have affected all businesses, right? The Internet, number one, has changed the game for everybody. And, um, and then, of course, from the internet, the ability to go mobile and handheld devices, that's kind of the second thing that changes everything. And then third, it's really BMW and their proliferation of products and models has, is significantly different than it was uh, back in the day. So you kind of going back, um, you are 100% correct. For a number of years, this was the only place where you could find the information and the resources. And a lot of that was in a very simple delivery system or what looks very simple today in the way of, you know, printed paper yeah. uh, or a message board of some type or the anonymous book. It was all very straightforward and very simple, and there really was no competition for that either. There was no other uh, way to get that information or other groups. Even if there were other clubs out there, which there are, it, it was there was enough for everybody. There was plenty to go around for everyone. And then, of course, uh, along comes the Internet and ch 
changes the game completely about how information is delivered and how people can access it and receive it. And it's still, you know, that that whole model is still accelerating so quickly mm-hmm. uh, of the way that it's changing and how people consume information and are, are able to get information. You even think about video, how much it's changed this format of, of spoken word and, and broadcasts. Uh, it's it's kind of unbelievable, and so it's it's very different than how it was. I think back to my dealership days uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s, and, and as a sales group, as a sales team, when people would come in, you know, we would keep the owner's news on hand, and we would look. If someone said, "Well, I need a new seat," you know, for my motorcycle, we would flip through the pages of the owner's news. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Corbin. You can call these guys. They have one or, or sergeants back here or, or, yeah. or Bill Mayer Saddles. You know, all these guys are available, and it was it was almost our it was like our Sears and Roebuck catalog for, for uh, <laughs> yeah. motorcycle stuff. Right, and, and that was just you know that was how it worked, and so it was a very easy um, a very easy model to work with as far as being a member is concerned. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2-Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2-Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2-Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2Valve.com. Happy to have William Plam from Boxer2Valve with us again. Our topic this week, something we all need to tackle at one point or another, replacing the rear main seal. All right, we're on the phone with William Plam from Boxer2Valve for another edition of Tech Talk. And today, the rear main seal replacement. And William, I think... The most common time folks realize they're going to need a rear main seal replacement or two telltale signs, by my estimation, are one, you've got some clutch slippage, meaning the seat rear main seal is leaking and contaminating the clutch, or you see the sort of dreaded, not pool of oil, but sort of mist and uh, oily mess there underneath the shelf, uh, underneath the gearbox. That's the, one of those two things is probably going to tell you it's time to replace the rear main seal. Uh, are those, and again, if you're a lot of guys like me, if you get a new bike and you're going through it uh, without knowing the history, I'll take 
take the transmission out and do that service as, as a matter of course, uh, so I know. But are those kind of two telltale signs you, you know it's time to dig in? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And maybe even a bigger, bigger leak for sure. But yeah, when you, when you see a fair amount of oil down there, it's, it, it's, it could be the rear main seal. It, it could be to the um, input shaft seal. That's right. Of the gearbox. Yep. Um, so you can kind of try to figure out, you know, by the smell test, even if it's, if that's high point gear oil or if it's motor oil, you that's know, right. by the color too. But if you went if you went in as far as to replace, let's say it was the the uh, the, the gearbox input shaft, and you went through all the effort of removing the gearbox, mm-hmm. you might consider just doing the rear main seal anyway while you're in there. You know, it's like if it's not leaking now, it's gonna. So. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. So let's talk about yeah. that again. Uh, I've done that service uh, on a number of bikes, so I'm pretty comfortable with it. But there may be some listeners out there who've only done it a few times or want to uh, do this job themselves. And so I guess the first thing we need to talk about is what kind of tools are you going to need? Uh, specific tools. Is it going to be a real expensive sort of investment to buy uh, some some special tools? I know right off the bat, uh, at a minimum, you're going to need stuff to get the clutch off. So there's sort of wing nut uh, clutch screws. I know you sell them. Uh, you're also going to need the clutch centering tool. Uh, those are the first two things that come to mind. What else am I missing special tool-wise there? Yeah, we, we do also offer a, a tool for actually physically putting the rear main seal in. That's right. Yep. Is, and that's kind of a neat thing. I mean, there's other ways you can do it. Some people just kind of carefully tap them in with a hammer, you know, but if you you know, and I mean, there's 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 a lot of other ways to do it, but that tool we have is kind of cool because it basically draws it in using the flywheel bolts, and that's so. There's that, and you won't need those it, those uh, uh, tools for releasing the clutch. Is only something you'll need up through 1980. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, the 81 on uh, the, that's not necessary with the clutch carrier type of uh, flywheel arrangement. Um, those tools aren't necessary. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, because yeah. I hadn't done that otherwise, yet. Otherwise, it's pretty much um, a, uh, other than that, the centering tool is a very important one, I think, because if you don't get the clutch disc really centered when you go to reassemble it, you're going to be fighting it all the way. So those are definitely a couple of these. We're not talking about a, a, a lot of money, probably, you know, combined, you know, like an hour's shop labor or something. Yeah. We're, we're looking at and so, um, yeah, you just have to re- remove the um, gearbox, obviously, first of all. That comes out the left side. And you look at, um, I think we've got a video on how to do it. It's not, not terribly hard, but you, you, you're going to probably mess a couple things up when you do the job. You've got to think about that. Um, there's a, there's a little boot on the on the clutch actuation arm. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you have the old version or the new version, it's might you're going to maybe want to replace that while you're there. The the drive shaft boot is something that you probably want to replace while yep. you have it apart. Um, the, the 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 drive shaft bolts you definitely want to get four of those and put new ones in. Indeed. You don't want to reuse those. Um, so these are some of the parts to think about. And then once you have the gearbox out, you, you, you want to, um, definitely consider replacing the, the gearbox input shaft seal, even if it's not leaking. And like I said before, if, 
if it ain't leaking out, it might do so. So that's something that these are just some of the parts you want to kind of think about that have nothing to do with the rear main seal, but they're sort of ancillary parts that you, you, normally you're going to want to replace because they're, they're, they're going to get damaged. And you can always order the parts so you have them, and everything looks cherry, and you end up using your old parts again. You can always return the the parts you don't use. Perfect. It's a big deal. Yeah, perfect. Well yeah. said. And then I guess uh, also bears to mention would be the oil pump uh, uh, O-ring and the cover. Uh, if you've yeah, got a, yeah. if you've got an earlier slash six, there's an update uh, for the cover, uh, if I recall correctly. And then also you're going to want uh, the new O-ring. And then uh, if you're updating it, you'll lose the dreaded Phillips head bolts. That can be a pain to get out. Uh, sometimes you need to get a little impact screwdriver or something to get those. Thankfully, I've not really had any issues with those, but I've seen guys who it's really turned into a nightmare just to get those off. And then those are replaced with just a standard uh, bolt head, so you don't have to worry about that going forward. What I want to ask yeah. you this, though. When you get the transmission out, again, we're getting into the uh, so-called scope creep here. Um, I usually, when I do it, again, this is part of a process for me if I'm getting a bike that I'm not familiar with the service history. I'm generally going to take the swing arm off uh, as part of that process rather than just sort of pulling it back. I'm going to remove the whole swing arm. I'm going to clean, physically clean the part. And generally speaking, I'm going to go ahead and replace the swing arm bearings, especially if it's on a, you know, an older bike from the 70s and, you know, north of 40,000 miles. That's not too tricky a job uh, to do the swing arm. Do you normally, when you're, I know it varies, obviously, from bike to bike and what a customer would want or what you want to do, but uh, if you're doing it just to get in there, you don't, we should say, you don't have to remove the swing arm. You can pull it out of the way. Yeah, you can. You have you'll you'll need a twenty seven millimeter socket yep. to loosen the lock nut, and then you unscrew the swing arm pivot pins, and you will have to at least move the swing arm back to get the gearbox out. But you're you're right. I mean, if you're going to go to the, all this work, then I would if you know if if I was doing it, it was my bike and all that. I would definitely um, do what you say. Take the swing arm out, put yep. the swing arm bearings in while you're in there because you're never going to have a better shot at it. Yeah, exactly. Well, at this point, you know. Yeah. And just you know, do it, do it right, do it once. Yeah, and, and I, I but, sh- but go ahead. But you can, if if you know that everything's cool with that, let's say you can absolutely just leave the swing arm that you know hanging there by the shocks and no big deal. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, First one thing you do though, it's very important, and this is like really a, a crazy thing that we've seen so many times. Uh, bikes come have come into the shop, and somebody's been in there, and they did a rear main seal, and they and they put the flywheel in wrong. So that, and then you can't time the bike. So it's like the you've got to really think about that when you before you take the the flywheel out to do the rear main seal. Is that you? You best the best thing is to set the bike at top dead center, so you've got the OT in the yep. window, and make sure that when you put it back, it goes back that way too. Because you you got five ways you can put that thing in, and um, and only one of them is right. So and that, and and so that's a that's a more common mistake than you might imagine. We've seen it so many times. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, so yes, you're at uh, top dead center, and I usually uh, index that so I'm I'm remembering in case the motor does get turned or something. And we should say you have to block the crank. We can't get past. Uh, 
past saying that. I know you use the strap technique on the front. That's real important. Uh, probably yeah, really, that's really important. Yeah, probably the first thing yeah. really you want to do. Take the con- timing cover off and use the strap uh, to block the crank so uh, that doesn't move. Uh, but what I was going to say was I usually index top dead center so my valves are open on the left side since that's the side of the bike I tend to work on when I'm doing that. And then that way I know uh, if somehow the motor's turned or moved uh, and I'm putting the flywheel back in and I need to make sure that everything's lined up, OT and all that, then I know I'm indexed on the left side and there's no, you know, that's just the easy way for me to remember to do that. Yeah. So that's that. That's that's a good way to do it. Yeah, it just has to go in that the same way it came out. Um, and then like that whole thing about the crank, um, stabilizing it, uh, just if folks don't know about that, there's a little, there's a thrust washer that lays in there and it's yep. held in place by a couple of little pins. And if the crank, when you take the um, crank, when you take the flywheel out, then you uh, technically uh, allow the movement of the crank forward. It could, it can move forward. And if it does, there's a good chance of that, that little uh, ring, it's a, the thrust washer ring will fall off its pins. And then there's no way you'll get that thing back on there without taking the motor apart. Yeah. That, that's so an... you have to stabilize that crank. And if the strap method is good, just, you know, but it, and if you do it, it's not just enough to put a strap on there. You have to make sure that thing is really tight. Yeah. You're yeah. going to be putting some pressure on the back. And there's other ways of doing it. I see people put a block of wood, uh, and then the cover back on, or, you know, the, you know, there's, you can get creative, but strap thing works for me. And it's something you always have kind of laying around, you know, yep. and, uh, but just make sure you really yank on that thing and make sure it's tight. Yeah. I've also seen a sort of plastic bolt that you can put in there, uh, on the end of the rotor. And then when you put the timing cover back on, you don't crank it down fully. You don't fully seat it, but that provides enough pressure there to keep it locked in place as well. Uh, but yes, work. yeah, that's, uh, if you forget to do that, it's a potentially nightmare scenario. Uh, all right. Yeah. So we talked about, uh, maybe you remove the swing arm. Maybe you don't. Again, I've done it in the past. One thing I did want to mention though, with the swing arm bearings, uh, and when you're changing those, this is just, a, a something I've, uh, uh, noticed, uh, over the years, as far as tools go, I haven't. I, I use, for a lot of times, I'll use just a simple slide hammer uh, bearing sort of puller. I get, I don't, it's not really a puller, just a slide hammer with that expanding uh, metal end uh, when you crank it down. Yeah. And I'm not saying don't buy the Kuko puller. I mean, there's things you're going to need it for. But if you're not ready to drop that money on something like that, you can get a real simple slide hammer puller with that expanding insert, and it makes pulling those races out of the swing arm. I mean, it's like that, you know. So, just yeah, a little that's tip. Another way, that's another way. It's a totally good thing. You, that's a, a very cost-effective way of, of dealing with that tool. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you're going to spend at the auto parts store maybe forty dollars for that or something. I mean, they're not terribly expensive, and they they come in handy on all kinds of things. Same thing with pulling races on a wheel bearing. Uh, makes a yep. real, real easy job of it. So, all right. So same bearing, same bearing, by the way. Yeah. 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 That's exactly yeah. right. So a couple other things to think about here, and you brought up a good point when you're going into the rear main seal, there's a lot of ancillary jobs you can do. We mentioned the swing arm, uh, you mentioned, uh, parts of the clutch throw out. So the boot, 
Um, also, the uh, output shaft on the transmission, uh, you're going to want to replace that then, probably to the neutral switch on the gearbox. Uh, you can yeah. sometimes, you might get a false ID on a bike that's leaking oil down there. It might not be the rear main seal. It could be the, tran or the neutral switch that's leaking and causing some oil to, to pool uh, down there or uh, puddle up down there. And that could be one thing Absolutely. to do so. Yeah, that's why I say you want to check and make sure that it's engine oil and not gear oil. It's fairly easy to tell the difference. Yeah, but by again, the color and by the smell. Yeah, that's exactly right. But again, that's you've got the transmission out. Again, you know, we're talking a you know twenty dollar part, whatever it is for the yeah, neutral switch. Yeah, definitely change the, the gear. The, the, we've had really good luck with the um, the replacement. Uh, Neutral indicator switches. So yeah, those notoriously they they leak. You can tell the difference. The new the new ones are kind of are brass color. Yep, that's right. And the original ones are silver, like just aluminum. So if so, you can kind of look at it. If it's got the brass one in there, you know you don't you you, you know that's been changed to the newest version. Yep. If it still point. has a silver one on there, then 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 you ought to you ought to take the opportunity to change it. One thing I've done too. And this was partly due to just my environment um, riding off-road a lot here, especially on the GS, was when I would get a transmission switch, I would also get some clear epoxy or some um, JB Weld and do sort of an additional seal with that epoxy or JB Weld around the area where the plastic housing meets the metal housing where the two terminals are where you plug the wires in. Uh, I would just sort of give that a nice... Uh, even coat around there to help sort of stabilize and keep that uh, a little bit more uh, sturdy uh, with that additional epoxy because I had replaced one with a brass switch once and it, I don't know what happened but uh, that whole sort of plastic innards just kind of came loose and it wasn't leaking mm -hmm. but the you know that hole where the wires hooked up there on those two little uh, spade terminals it was it was loose and you know I was like what the hell happened you know this thing isn't even a year old I might have over torqued it I, I don't know but uh, that's just a little that's probably a, maybe a little OCD on me but I tend to coat that area a little bit and just give it a little extra uh, protection when I do that I, I don't know if it's necessary. Yeah, that's, yeah, so that's a great idea because that's exactly where the where the where they leak, and that's kind of the the weak point. Yeah, yeah, basically yep. moving the wires through that switch housing, and you know, so yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, and then so all right, so you've got the rear main seal in. I like I do like to use uh, the tool that you all provide uh, because you know it's going to get set right. Uh, but let's just say you want that to be you don't want it you don't want the rear main seal protruding. Uh, and you don't want it recessed in too deep. You basically, if I'm remembering, you just it should be flush with the engine case. It should be flush, but there's a there's a there's a little step on on the inside that it you know it, it'll it'll seat onto. And but that 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 equates to flush. Yeah, it does. Okay, good. And so let's talk about uh, bolt torques uh, when you're getting everything back together. So the first thing is going to be the flywheel bolts. Uh, and the torque on those, uh, I don't, re I, I'm, I'm sure you don't uh, remember the setting, but uh, exactly. I want to say it was like 85 foot-pounds, which, uh, yeah. or 90. 75 comes, 75 comes to mind, but I never memorized torque specs. Yeah. Um, look those up. 
but one one thing just to just to go back to the seal again real yeah, quick. You yeah. know, if you, would, you might pull out an, uh, a, what looks like to be a, a regular um, radial seal, the conventional side, a little spring on the inside, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But what what's what's being provided nowadays? The rear main seal is a newer style seal that has the um, a different type of seal. I don't, it, it, but it has a little cup on the. Um, it's supplied with a with a, a holder. It's it, anyway. It's going to look different. The new seals uh, might might look different than what comes out of there. Is all I wanted to mention. Okay. That, yeah, that's good to know. And I I think almost a, a telltale sign. That's the it's the original one. A uh, you mentioned with that spring inside of there. But B I think most of the original ones. Uh, I know the few that I've pulled out have been white. That's right. Those are the really original ones. Yeah. So, That's correct. Yeah. If you see it, if you happen to be in there and you see you've got a white rear main seal and it's not leaking, <laughs> go, go ahead and replace it anyway, I think, is the is the yeah. deal there. Oh, yeah. The white ones, yeah. Some of them, you still see them today, and uh, it's amazing. It is. And, then, and then, they, then the replacements were black radial seals. And then now we're kind of like at the third uh, generation, so to speak. These new seals, they work pretty well, though. Yeah. It's different. Yeah, I think they're kind of brown, and they've got that extra sort of uh, lip, kind of winged lip inside of there that goes in. Uh, I noticed that uh, when I put one in over the winter. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was updated. So, okay. So, yes, make sure you've got your torque specs right on the bolts. Uh, I mean, what I will say is when I was doing it up to 85 or 90 or whatever whatever it was, I mean, you're like, gosh, this is a, it's a lot of torque. Um, but uh, that's, that's what it is. Also, the, some of the later Slash 7, I think, had also had the little O-ring uh, in the flywheel that you're going to want to replace when you're in there as well. So don't overlook that. Let's talk about the transmission bolts, uh, the four transmission bolts. Of course, I've seen people reuse them. And okay, whatever. I don't think that that's you're saving any money uh, or really, you know, getting one over on anybody by reusing those. Are they not stretch bolts to begin with? Um, the 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 drive shaft bolts. You're drive about, shaft right? bolts. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're not. I don't think they're stretch bolts. Okay. The real early bikes, you'll find they have a little lock washer in there. That's and right. They were about a couple millimeters longer than the new ones up today. They they used to put them in with the lock washers, and then so if you got a really older bike and it comes out, you know, don't you, you're not going to be putting those shouldn't be putting those lock washers back in again. Um, then they invented Loctite. You know, it's just one of those things. You could you could probably reuse those bolts. You could probably clean them up really well, put some Loctite on there, put it back in, and you know, but you're 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 saving like you know I don't know ten twelve bucks in doing so. And I, I think it's just a good idea to um, replace them. Um, I, I had them come loose on me one time many, many years ago, and it was it wasn't wasn't exactly a fun experience. So it's just I think a good idea to, to replace them. I had it. I had it happen too. I was in New Orleans of yeah. all places uh, when it happened. So <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the new ones now, if I'm not mistaken, don't they kind of there is there Loctite on there already? They're already coated in. Yeah, the, there's, there's like a red Loctite on there already. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, what I did on my bike, my way back when after that happened, is I actually uh, put new bolts in because they were all you know one of them came clear out of there and it 
buggered things up pretty bad. But yeah. I, I, I use safety wire. That's like the that's the surefire way of never having to come loose. You just drill, you know, drill a hole in in each of the heads and and then fish some some uh, stainless safety wire in there, and they, they're not. That's if you really want to be sure that it'll come out. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm sure there are some aircraft mechanics or race mechanics saying yes, you need to do that every time. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then and then getting those bolts, uh, those draft shaft bolts, quote unquote torque. Now I admittedly have used the elbow torque wrench uh, on this, uh, and my general procedure is I take the in the toolkit the round uh, 10 millimeter wrench, and I'll go through and just. And I'll put uh, what I do is put you know put a rag or something in the palm of my hand, and then go and do each each one of those all four of them, get them you know hand tight you know get a good uh, grunt, uh, or as uh, my my uh, pig German I would say gooden tight, uh, get them yep. real good, and then what I'm, the final step I'll do after I've got them all hand cranked on there real tight is I'll use that same uh, wrench. And then just with a light hammer, then I'll tap it until I hear a little click or a sort of, you know, you can hear that bolt has made that last little uh, turn and I call it good. Now, um, that served me well over the years. I've not had any come out. And again, I'm using new bolts. So that's my technique. Some guys will put, will use a torque wrench and there's an adapter uh, you can use to make sure you're getting that torque uh, spec properly. Uh, that's another way to do it. How, how do you handle it in the shop? The way I've done it, and uh, I use a, uh, a, a kind of a standard length snap-on 10 millimeter wrench. Okay. To, which those are like about seven inches long, I would say. And I do like you do, just get get them all you know hand tight so that everything's nice and even. And then I go through and tighten them with that wrench, um, just short of breaking a tooth. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. And you've got, and with that longer wrench, you've got some added leverage, obviously. Yeah. And I just get it as tight as I, as I can, you know, and I, I mean, I've tried, we have the tool with the torque wrench thing, but those, those, those stubby bolts, they're really hard. You won't break it. Um, at least I, I, I'm not able to, uh, with my strength. And so, uh, that's worked for me and, uh, and knock on wood. Yeah, haven't right. Had, <laughs> haven't had any come loose. Excellent. Excellent. Several decades. <laughs> Last thing we'll cover here uh, before we wrap it up, uh, and we don't want to gloss over this uh, since we were talking about sort of ancillary uh, components and procedures and things to think about, is when you are getting uh, the clutch arm and the throwout bearing and all that stuff back together, uh, getting that felt uh, in there can be a little bit tricky uh, as well. And I noticed in the video, uh, you used a little bushing uh, to help ease that in there. You're almost always going to want to use uh, a new felt uh, when you're buttoning that part of the procedure back up, correct? Yeah, you know, it's not a bad idea to put, put a new one, one in there. It, it does uh, wear out and uh, it's it's good good time to do it. Yeah, the bushing technique works pretty well. Uh, if you just basically can make one, or you might scrounge around and find something suitable, but it has to have that same ID. I think it's eight millimeters. I'm not 100 percent sure, but basically that way you can kind of fiddle around, get that 
um, felt kind of into the bushing part of it. So, and then you can just push it in, it's basically like a like an installation sleeve. Yeah, and uh, work. It takes it takes a lot of uh, stress out of that job. It does. Yeah, I remember when I first did it on on the R90s uh, four or five years back. Uh, I remember seeing that in the video, and then yeah, you, you brought up a great point. Just going through your uh, drawer of nuts and bolts and spare parts that many of us have in the garage or in your shop, and sometimes it'll take a few minutes. But if you're like me or anybody else there who tends to save sort of just oddball things in a drawer or a, a bucket or something like that, odds are you've got something around there that's going to do the job. And fortunately, that was the case for me. Yeah, you know what that comes to mind would work too is a valve guide. Oh yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah, that seems to be the right diameter and everything. So, mm-hmm. all right, William. Well, look, uh, a great conversation once again on trans or on uh, transmissions. We just did that. Great conversation once again, William, on the rear main seal replacement. Again, if you're doing this for the first time, don't be afraid. Watch the boxer two valve videos. William can walk you through the steps. Um, as I've mentioned before. Yeah, it's great. Those videos are really nice because if you've got a nice shop with a workbench, my MO has always been just to sort of put that video on. I'm familiar enough with the procedure now that I can do it, but I still like to reference back sort of through each step as you go through it to make sure I'm not forgetting anything. Uh, all the parts you need, the tools and the video, all that's available at boxer2valve.com. And once again, William, always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Darren. Look forward to talking to you again. Always great visiting with William Plam at Boxer 2 Valve. Now, back to our chat with Ted Moyer on the Airhead 247 podcast. Um, I think now, you know, the, um, somebody quizzed me again this past weekend. We had a board meeting a couple weeks ago, and someone asked about our mobile strategy. And uh, we kind of acknowledged that, well, hey, we're, we're still kind of behind the curve from a, a mobile perspective, but the fact that, you know, the iPhone develops and devices are right there in people's hands, and again, it, it completely changes the game. And even for me, I, I like to still think of myself as a pretty young guy, but, um, you know, I look at my kids, and they absolutely consume media 100% different than the way that I do uh, when it comes to mobile and those sorts of things and what their expectations are. And so we've had to really step up our game and, and try to move forward in a better way with, with uh, digital and mobile and how all that works. And, and like I said, I think we're still, you know, if I'm being critical, we're still way behind the curve. We, we, we really need to accelerate a whole lot faster to be able to get the owner's news to you in a beautiful digital format, to get our website kind of mobily responsive and, you know, all boring things that we talk about behind the scenes. Right. A way for people to to really get it, even video communication. We spent a lot of time talking a couple of weeks ago about uh, video and being able to send our messages out that are important uh, via via uh, video rather than even an email or a web post or any of those sorts of things. So it's that's the second big one. And then, of course, with BMW uh, to go from basically a sport touring company at one time with oh yeah, this little. Uh, sort of funky-looking off-road bike that they used to have, you know, to today where they are uh, much broader in terms of uh, on-road, off-road, dual sport, um, a fantastic offering in the super sport category, 
you know, a lot of heritage models. Now the R18 and the cruiser segment out there. I mean, it, it's just complete diversity from where they were 20 years ago in the type of motorcycles that they offer, but also the type of customers that they attract. And you you almost stand back and, and just your head almost spins on your shoulders of how fast things have changed and, and how many different things are coming at you with, with just those three things between Internet, mobile, and the proliferation of those models. It's just, it's it's. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, I, I, I totally get it. I mean, you think about when the club started, you're celebrating, I think, 50 years coming up in 2023. So uh, when the club first started, I mean, you had Slash 2s and, you know, the Type 247 uh, Airhead that we all know and love uh, here. And you're exactly right. I mean, the model proliferation and then when you get into that, just the different types of personalities, income levels, backgrounds of people what was once probably probably a sort of relatively focused group of similar minds and mindsets all of a sudden becomes wow you're having to appeal to just a broad range of consumers and interests which is a challenge it is it it really is and it's the most significant hurdle that we face Mm -hmm. to try to when you talk about uh, creating community and supporting community and that sort of thing to get all of the that that different diversity to bring it together and if you look around you in the way of the uh, of the internet and mobile and things like that uh, I don't want to say that it's you know diversity there has its own individual places um, all of that stuff all of that content and benefit and that sort of thing is being delivered to much smaller groups now. The ability is there to deliver it to a much smaller group and be successful, which is 180 degrees opposite of our original model of one big group and give them all the same thing. You know, they'll, they'll be happy with it. It's just, it's completely the other direction from where, where we started. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of amazing that we have lasted for 50 years with with that sort of with the changes that have taken place. Uh, but at the same time, I think we all, you know, we really feel the urgency to get up to speed and get with the time, so to speak, and and uh, get people what they want in the way of a community or a club. Do you think uh, five years from now you'll still be printing an actual hard copy of the magazine? <laughs> um. <laughs> Don't put me on the spot. Too soon. <laughs> okay, ten years from now. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's it's a great question. Yeah. I, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said I don't know. It's going to be close. I don't know if we would still be producing it in five years, and that timeline hasn't didn't develop as quickly as I thought. I think we will. I mean, I think the honest answer is we absolutely will still be producing a print magazine uh, five years from now. But I think we will also be doing a lot of other things with with the media or with the stories or content that goes in that print magazine. I think we will be uh, delivering it in a much different and broader way. And so we have spent a lot of time. We still have a traditional structure of we have a print media editor in the way of Bill Wiegand, who does a, a fantastic job with the BMW's owner's news. But he and I spend a lot of time talking about, well, is, is sort of print media editor still the right 
thing to be doing, or should he be more of a feature editor, so to speak, or, or really out investigating different content, regardless of where it goes in print or digital or mm-hmm. any of those sort of things. And so, I, yes, I absolutely think we will do a, a print magazine because I think our members will demand it, but I think we we will have to be much better at all the other ways that we deliver that media. Is it due in part because... Uh, I don't know if there's any other way to put this because a lot of the members tend to be a little bit older and are just comfortable and familiar with the, you know, getting something in the mail every month and like the tactile aspect of, you know, sitting on the chair and having a coffee and flipping through the magazine. Uh, Or do you still think it's just viable in and of itself for what it is? No, I I think it's the, the, the first option. I think our members will absolutely demand it, mm-hmm. and I do think it's because uh, it's it's uh, an older demographic or people who grew up with magazines like I did, who came out of the print business, um, so to speak, and just have a familiarity with it, and they will never, well, you know, we're creatures of habit. We will never give those things up, so to speak. Um, the numbers, t- you know, continue to go down year on year. The number of people who actually rely on a magazine but there's still a significant number there. There's, there's no way uh, you would ever get me to say, well, we're, we're turning off the magazine today. Yeah. Know, it, it will yeah. never happen because it's such an important part of uh, our customer base and what we do. I think what's, what's really more important that we say is, well, how do, you know, we've got to get to new people and deliver things in a new way. You know, and, and how they do it. So I was it's kind of an interesting side story, but I was just talking to somebody the other day about um, tech content and mobile and all that kind of stuff. And the, the guy was not necessarily, a, uh, I don't remember who it was, but I do remember it wasn't an, a really young guy. But he said, well, I absolutely want to be able to access it on my phone because I want to put the phone down on the bench beside me, you know, while I'm working on the motorcycle and I can access that stuff. And I I kind of thought back to my days. I grew up working on cars with my dad as a kid, and of course, the first thing he would do was, you know, he'd show you where the the shop manual was, and he would show you how to clean all the tools when you put them up. That was his thing. You know, you had the shop manual, and you better know how to clean his tools, put them up. And uh, that's kind of what all the little manuals with the greasy fingerprints in them and all that kind of stuff that you'd flip through and figure out how to do all of those things. And um, it's it's I know there's a big argument going on right now about shop manuals and absolutely believe in the need to have all that tech, but it's surprising the number of people who want it, you know, on their phone or their tablet or something along those lines mm-hmm. uh, rather than a printed copy. And it's coming from people who would have grown up with a printed copy. So it definitely shifts. You know, it definitely changes over time. It does. It does. I mean, I still have manuals um, and use them more as a as a reference uh, than anything. I still have some actual, you know, BMW shop manuals, uh, you know, in the blue uh, three ring hard binder, you know, for a slash seven or something like that. And, you know, those were written for trained mechanics. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I mean, they weren't written for the home hobbyist. Those manuals assume a lot of things. That being said, they're still a good reference, uh, you know, for torque specifications and, you know, some other uh, repairs and stuff you want to do. I do want to, you mentioned though, and I want to get back to this, uh, as far as younger demographics, I'm curious 
what do you, and that really, if you ask anybody who's in a sort of legacy club, whether it's motorcycles or, you know, this is a bad example, I mean, I don't know, model airplanes or something, I don't know, not that anybody does that anymore, but uh, um, is reaching the younger audience, reaching the younger crowd. So my question here is, do you are you able to look at you know what motors how, how motorcycle sales are in what demographics how what how many younger folks you know under thirty five or whatever your line of demarcation is there for a demographic how they're purchasing motorcycles are they still purchasing them at a at a rate that they're going to be in want to be involved in clubs or or clubs not. Uh, relevant for them? I mean, those are some of the questions I think uh, that you're asking and talking about there. Yeah, it's, there's, there's, it's multifaceted. There's mm-hmm. several things going on all at the same time. And, and I think the first thing that we look at is that clubs or fraternal organizations or social organizations in any model are struggling, mm-hmm. whether it's us or the Boy Scouts or you know, the uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association or the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the American Legion, all of those groups are having a hard time bringing in new members, regardless of age even. They, they will say young members, but they're having a hard time bringing in new members, regardless for some of the things that we already talked about. Yeah, That community happens in just a very different way than what all of our models are set up to support. And so... I think we have to do a much better job. We have to accelerate a lot faster and change that model and give people what they want, number one. Number two, uh, we, we do tend to label it as younger because we see, I think it's easy for us to measure, again, in any social or fraternal organization, it's easy for us to member the age demographic and say what's well, going up. And so we always talk about younger members and how do we get younger members. And I struggle with that a little bit and internally that I say, you know, guys, younger doesn't have to mean 18. We, we struggle to get 45-year-olds even. <laughs> yeah. uh, so sometimes there's some low-hanging fruit there that we need to go get the 45-year-olds as well because they're very valuable to us as a community and an organization. Any type of new blood is very important to uh, a social or fraternal outfit. And so we're interested in all new members. And then, I, you know, you take that one step further and, and to the heart of your question, what are young people, you know, really young people doing as far as motorcycle sales and that sort of thing? Yeah. And I don't have, if somebody could call me on this because I don't have all the specifics, so I'm going to put a little asterisk beside it in case I, I misspeak. Sure. But in general, I don't think young people are buying at the same rate as you and I were when we were 25 to 34, yeah. let's say. I just don't think the penetration rate is as high. And you look around at, at um, some of those groups, and I just don't think motorcycles, my personal opinion, is that motorcycles just aren't as extreme as they once were. There are, you know, when you and I started doing it, they were dangerous. We were rebels. We were sort of the bad ones that you didn't hang out with that guy because he was a little bit uh, off-center, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that that's the case today. Today, it's compared to other things that are out there, it tends to be uh, more normalized. It's a good point. And so, like, like I said, I have a 24-year-old son uh, that that I'm pretty close to, and and spend a lot of time, you know, just observing how he operates and all that kind of stuff. 
and he grew up around motorcycles from the day he was born. And he had multiple bikes at his disposal all 24 years of his life. And he really showed very little interest in it at all until he was almost 20 years old. And still, to that at that point, he still didn't didn't wasn't just overwhelmed by it. He had lots of other competing things that had his attention and that were more exciting and more extreme to him than than the motorcycle was. So, um, I think the I think the industry as a whole realizes the same thing. Mm-hmm. You've seen the motorcycle industry council develop their uh, ride with us program to try to get young people to ride you know, to make it accessible and available, and I, I applaud them for that effort. I think they're uh, really the, the, the only ones who've made an effort to try to get uh, young, the youngest people into the sport and riding again. There's a lot that's interesting going on with uh, motocross still and the ability for that to transfer over to dual sport mm. and, and what kind of implications does that have yeah. for the motorcycle market. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things happening there. So, I don't want to paint a picture that all is lost by any means. I think there's still a, a healthy, vibrant um, organization. But I do think that, that we, you know, as an industry, really have to continue to um, revitalize ourselves and, and think about new ways to approach customers and that kind of thing. Yeah, one thing I've, I've noticed and, and discussed with a number of guests here is, uh, especially when we're talking about maybe the, the 30 or 35 and under crowd is, the popularity of, you know, the cafe style bike that people build. And I'm active on a couple different motorcycle forums. And a lot of times you'll see a younger guy come in, uh, post a picture about a bike. He's doing this, he's doing that. And then, uh, you know, predictably here come, you know, the guys with the wax coats and the pipes, you know, yeah, you know, what are you doing? You know, why are you tearing this bike up and that kind of thing? And sometimes members of the club can be their own worst enemy in and bringing in new blood and and welcoming new folks. And I think one of the things I've noticed with the cafe style uh, bikes and builds and and people who are into those, it's really no different than what was going on in the 70s when guys were building choppers uh, and stuff like that. It's just a way to, you know, make something yours that's unique and it's a popular style uh, of the time. Uh, But again, as I said, at the same time, you know, when a lot of those guys try to come into the fold or, you know, get into the mix, they they get pushback from from the old guys and that's that can be a problem too i totally agree it's it's really disheartening for me and and for a lot of community you know a lot of people who grew up in a club or around community to see that and and can't put their finger on how to sort of fix it globally and 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 what do you do about it because I think you're 100% correct. It's no different than what we did when we were 20 or 25 or whatever age and, and wanted to make something our own, and it was kind of celebrated, you know, and, and you see the same thing going on today, uh, especially in that cafe and custom world where people, I mean, they're doing some really cool stuff. And, uh, okay, so I'm a 78 motorsport guy that doesn't want to touch <laughs> right. it or wants it to be, you know, 100% factory original. That's fine. But there's other guys out there who who uh, have some really cool interests and do some interesting things. And I'll be honest, I don't 
you know, in all those groups, I don't see anybody taking a pristine 78 R100 no. RS Motorsport and tearing it up. And making no. It custom. No, because they're, they're, they're usually um, buying a bike rod. that's, they're buying something that's in their uh, uh, budget range, you know, a two or th- you know, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred dollar bike and working it on the weekends and, and having some fun with it and hanging out and drinking some beer with their buddies or whatever. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're resurrecting something. And in my mind, we have a, a member named Zach Witkowski that's up in Illinois that's done a couple of our custom bike builds for us and is actually working on a, a slash six project for us right now. That'll be a foundation raffle a little bit later on. And Zach, again, his, his brain and, and his creative side works very, very different than the factory original, so to speak. And he comes up with some really cool stuff and uh, can can build some really interesting things. And if you go to his shop, you see these bikes that are just transformed, and then you look over in the corner, and he he has an original 77 R100RS in the in blue <laughs> that uh, belonged to his father, you know, that is pristine, that he's restored. Wow. And so those there's a way for those worlds to get along. We just haven't figured out, yeah. you know, the best way to promote that yet. But it's it's uh, internally, it's it's kind of troubling for us. If you like community, it's really disheartening to see, and you just kind of want to reach out to your oldest members and go, "Hey, man, give them a chance." Let yeah, exactly. That would be cool. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. All right, Ted. Before we run out of time here, uh, we did mention. Uh, 2023 is marking the 50th anniversary of the MOA. Um, And, of course, I'm sure you're even now and probably a year or two ago began preparations uh, for the national rally that's going to mark the 50th anniversary. Uh, I want to talk about the rally that's coming up in 2023. uh, And let's start out by mentioning I saw you have a goal uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, of partnering with the Vintage BMW Owners Club and getting as many examples of every model uh, over the year range, I guess all the way back to the 20s to, to current, uh, on display or having those at the rally. How, is that true? And if so, how's it going? It is true. The uh, it's a really the vintage BMW motorcycle owners have to get all the credit because their leadership came forward to us and said, "Hey, we would like to do this as a way to celebrate, you know, the hundredth anniversary of BMW and the fiftieth anniversary of of the MOA." And so, can we do it at the national rally? And and our role really was just to say that's a fantastic idea, and how can we help? Yeah, and so. Those enthusiasts uh, have really stepped forward in their membership, and, and a lot of our members are members as well, but, but there's been a little bit of a communication plan to say, hey, we want to bring one of everything from 1923 to 1993 to the rally and put it on display. And so it's, it's going very well, actually. I was a little skeptical at first, to be honest, just when you think about the logistics of pulling you know, uh, 60 to 75 motorcycles together uh, on display. We usually have a vintage effort at the rally, but it's typically a handful of people who really make that happen. When you start talking about 50 different owners bringing motorcycles together, it's, you can imagine the logistics. <laughs> yes. So we put together a, a, a large space at the rally. We're reserving a sort of the center of the hall uh, for the vintage club to put together this uh, display. 
And the last time I saw it, which has been a week or 10 days ago, but they probably had 40 or so models committed uh, at this point. And from talking to the, the volunteers who are helping build out that effort, it's, it's going really well. And so I'm super excited to uh, see it. Uh, consequently, believe it or not, BMW is very interested in uh, what we're doing as well Good. to celebrate that 100th. And, and, again, sort of that ebb and flow relationship of partnering with us. And so they are, are very interested, too. And I think it'll be a I think it'll be quite the display, quite honestly. I, 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 if I was skeptical at first, I am not any longer. I, I believe they're going to pull this off and make it look really cool. That sounds uh, that sounds like making the trip uh, worthwhile just for that display. Do you happen to know uh, if there are any ones that are a particular difficulty uh, locating or filling in the gaps year-wise? Off the top of my head, I do not. I apologize. I probably should know that. <laughs> no, that's sure. okay. I was just wondering if we could put out a call for, you know, if somebody's got a, you know, a 1953 model or something that you're looking for. Well, I definitely think they have a, uh, they have an inventory basically on the vintage BMW motorcycle owners website. And there is a form there that if someone's interested that they can fill out and, and offer up, you know, their motorcycle. So, um, uh, definitely that group, uh, like I said, a lot of stuff gets done. The important stuff gets done here by volunteers, and, and uh, that is a, is a great example uh, of a, a volunteer effort. And we've been a little bit hands-off other than to get them the space and sure. say, hey, uh, let us know how we can help. All right, cool. So if uh, folks are interested in finding out more about that, uh, the rally is, what is that, July, June or July? It's June, so our rally is June 8th through the 10th okay. of 23. It's just outside Richmond, Virginia. Technically, it's in Doswell, Virginia, at the Meadow Event Park uh, north of Richmond. All right. And, uh, again, Vintage BMW Owners Club, uh, if you've got a particularly rare or unique model you think would be apropos uh, for the display there, you can check them out there. Uh, what else, Ted? As far as plans for the fiftieth, what what are y'all cooking with uh, cooking on there now? So we've got quite a bit. Uh, we we definitely um, are in pretty serious talks with BMW to have them come in a different way, not just the demo truck, but some additional um, support, whether that's giveaways or an additional concert or something like that. Um, we're definitely hoping for something or planning something big with them. We've gotten a fantastic turnout from our exhibitor community so far in the way of numbers. Uh, if we had 80 or 85 exhibitors last year, we're looking like 120 to 125 this year who want to come and be part uh, of the 50th. We're, it's, it's still early, but I would tell you that we're working on a pretty large concert. Um, the venue that we're using has a large amphitheater, and they have a concert coming on that Saturday evening, and so we're in partnership with them to try to figure out, you know, how can we be a part of that or, or what can that look like. And so we're, we're – I don't have too many details that I can share, but we're definitely pushing down the path to see what that would be like, and it would be a major uh, concert act. We are um, – we're pulling out, you know, everything that we can think of. So we have the intentions of, of doing another Brewfest this year, which was wildly popular in 21. Uh, we're looking at a, a, a wine fest or wine tasting this year. There's actually a bourbon distillery that's just a little bit north of Richmond in uh, Fredericksburg 
that we're trying to work a partnership with there. Um, all kinds of stuff. The the big one, I, I just talked to a couple of guys yesterday, uh, some training providers about our uh, ADB area and um, what would go on there in an ADB track and training. And, of course, alongside the Vintage Show, we always have the People's Choice Bike Show, which we're dedicating even more space to this year. So uh, I get a little bit excited about it. I could rattle off for quite a while because it's so much of our, <laughs> yeah. of our year uh, of what goes on, and it's so much fun uh, to get to the rally that, you know, I just I look forward to it every year and can't wait to get there. Wonderful, wonderful. So folks want to find out more about the rally. They're interested uh, in joining or maybe rejoining the MOA. Uh, the website, if I'm remembering correctly, is just MOA.org. Is that right? BMWMOA.org. Thank you. And from there, definitely links to membership and to, um, to the rally site as well. Ted, I tell you what, uh, it's really been fun catching up with you. Uh, I think the club is in good hands uh, with your leadership and your insight. Uh, just what I've been able to do to deduce from our conversation today, uh, really impressive. And I think uh, the club's got a bright future ahead of it. So continued success. Thank you. I really appreciate that sentiment. Now we're, we're looking forward to uh, another 50, that's for sure. That'll do it for this week. Glad to have spent some time with you today. As noted at the top of the show, a refreshingly candid conversation with Ted, I think, this week. The MOA is in a good place with him at the helm. Until next time, so long for now. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.